0: excited that we get to continue our creed series today in which we are talking about the apostles creed and in it we are clarifying the essential truths of christianity and for this creed series we really want to end it like on a high note and so a couple of weeks ago i challenged you that on the last sunday of this month next week that you would invite somebody that needs jesus invite somebody that needs to be saved and bring them to church next sunday and so in doing that we want to equip you in the best way possible that we can so that you can bring people to the church so as you leave today in the lobby in the foyer we've got little packets to assist you in inviting people In that packet, there are four invite cards, and they're just simple invite cards with a special message that says God loves you. and It's just something that you can give to somebody and say, hey, God loves you, he cares about you, and I would love to invite you to my church next Sunday. And then the holder that the invite cards are in is actually a gift card holder. And so what we're encouraging you to do is go out and buy a gift card, maybe a $5 Chick-fil-A gift card. Slide it in that holder and give it to somebody and say, hey, this one's on me. I just wanted to bless you. I just wanted to let you know God cares about you and I care about you. And I would love for you to be able to come to high praises with me next week. Week. We want to equip you so that you can bring people to the house ultimately so that we can people save, see people get saved and have new life in Christ. Because isn't that what it's all about, church? Amen. So I, I just want to encourage you, take use of those resources and get somebody here next week. It may change their life for eternity. Well, today, as we continue our creed series, we're getting towards the end of the creed. And today, we're focusing primarily on two different topics. We're focusing on the Holy Spirit, and we're focusing on the church and how those two topics sort of intertwine and go together. So if you would go ahead and throw um, this week's version of the creed up here, it says this. It says, I or we believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints. Now, when we say that we believe in the Holy Catholic Church, we don't mean that we believe in the Roman Catholic Church. When there's a capital C for Catholic, that means you're talking about the Roman Catholic Church. The word Catholic simply means universal. So it means that we believe in one universal body of Christ, that it doesn't matter where you're at, what culture you're from, what local church you go to, we all make up one church, the Church of Jesus Christ. But before we get into that, I want to get a little participation. So if you would just raise your hands. Um, How many of you grew up playing church basketball? We got any church basketball people? Nice, nice. I grew up playing church basketball, and it was a ton of fun. Um, Before I started playing church basketball, though, my brother, who's older than me, he played for high praises. And he played baseball. So what he did is he invited all of his baseball athlete friends to join our team. And he used a little bit of unethical methods. His baseball friends would leave their church and come to youth group just long enough to to say that they go to our church and make the team. And then as soon as the season was over, they would just go back to their own church, right? Like, not saying that's the the most ethical thing in the world, but they did it, and it got us championships, okay? So we got some trophies somewhere. But they were awesome. I mean, they just killed it. But when I started playing church basketball, um, I didn't have any athlete friends to unethically add to the team. So we just like had the kids in the youth group. Like we just took what we could get. And so I remember um, one year we were on our team and our team, we were just bad. We were just bad. We had no unity. We didn't know how to run plays. We didn't know how to pass. We just sort of like ran out on the court and just sort of like did our thing and we were brutal, like Hardly ever won. And I contributed to that fully. Like when I was playing, I had this fear, and my fear was ever getting the ball. Like ever even touching the ball. Like just keep that thing away from me. I couldn't dribble, I couldn't shoot, I couldn't do anything. So I remember one game, I'm, uh, I'm playing, and I managed to kind of slap the basketball away. And then I, I got it, and I started running down the court, and I'm dribbling down the court, and then it hit me. Oh my gosh, Evan, you have the ball. Get rid of this thing ASAP. And so I had some options. I could keep dribbling and go down and score a basket. I could look for a teammate and pass, or I could do something else. I decided on option C, and I just stopped right where I was, which was half court, and just shot that thing. Said, get that thing out of here. Needless to say, I didn't even come close to making it, and it was a pretty embarrassing moment. But on that team, there was one good player named Desmond, and Desmond was awesome. Desmond could dribble, he had handles, he could drive in the paint, he could score, and like, just being honest, our game plan was Desmond. Like, that's it. It's just like, get the ball to Desmond, hope that it goes in, that's our only chance of getting any points on the board. Like that team was a mess. We weren't unified. We didn't have a game plan. We relied way too much on the gift of one person. We just didn't really contribute. And it kind of, the, the whole health of the team suffered because even with as good as Desmond was, we just couldn't figure out how to win basketball games. And as I think about that team that year, I realize that sometimes the church looks just like that. The church is supposed to be a unified team. The church is supposed to be a unified people. The church is supposed to be going after one common goal, which is the mission of Jesus Christ. But so often, we're the most divided people in the world. I mean, just look at the amount of denominations that we have. Denominations have split over small and and petty things and, and things that don't even matter. Look, I'm not saying denominations aren't good or they're bad or something. I love our denomination. There, there's, a, there's room for differences. But we've as the whole church, we've split ourselves up. But we see the same thing in local churches. Like sometimes Christians can be the most difficult people. Amen, church. Y'all know it's true. And we have infighting, we get at each other on, on the internet and, and we don't forgive one another and we're called to be a unified people and yet we're fighting. But not only that, our church oftentimes, like the church oftentimes, especially in the American church, they don't contribute but instead they rely on the special gift of one person that they think it's the job of the pastor or the paid pastoral team to do all of the work of the ministry. That they've come to receive and we've come to give and that that's how God's designed it. But because of that, we have suffered. We've suffered in spiritual growth. We've suffered in spiritual maturity. We're divided and we're, we're relying on the gifts of a few to give us spiritual nourishment. But the gifts of a few were never designed to give you all the spiritual nourishment that you need. We've been left spiritually immature, and we've stunted our growth, and we've been left malnourished. But that's not how God has called the church to be. He's called the church to be a unified front that sticks together no matter what. He's called the church to be a team where everybody uses their gifts and their talents and what God has uniquely equipped them to do to contribute to the health of the church. And in that, that's where we will see true spiritual Growth. And this is most clearly stated today in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Now, here's what's going on in Ephesians. Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus, or maybe it was a lot of different churches in the, in the area. We're not sure. And, and what he's doing in the first three chapters, it's all doctrinal. I mean, it's all heavy theology. Sometimes it's difficult to understand. I mean, he is going deep. And then chapters 4 through 6, he gives us the practical. He, he, he shows why all of the doctrine matters and teaches us how to live practically in light of the truth of chapters 1 through 3. So what Paul is trying to put forward in chapter one through, chapters 1 through 3 is God's eternal plan. That, that from eternity past, God had a plan designed for his people. That that plan was set in motion by Jesus Christ. His plan is that we would receive forgiveness of sins through Jesus and that individually we would be made a new creation, that we would be made a brand new people. But not only that, God's eternal plan from the very beginning is that collectively we would make up a brand new society, that we would be one people from all different cultures and backgrounds and and childhoods and whatever else, that despite all of our differences, we would rally together and be one new society, the church and the family of Jesus Christ. And as Paul is writing to this church, just like in Rome, there's a lot of infighting. Because God is showing that he didn't just come to save the Jews, but he came to save the Jews and the Gentiles, which is everybody. But these two groups hated each other. I mean they were wildly different. And so all of a the sudden these two groups are, are just being smooshed together and they're trying to figure out how to live on one united front. Like imagine the, the the um excuse me, imagine the the civil rights era. I almost said the Civil War era, the civil rights era, and and, and all of the division and, and all of the racism and all of the hate that's going on. And then imagine the end of the segregation era. Or finally, everybody is coming back together again. But these two opposing groups are trying to figure out how do we do life together. That's what's going on in this church or, or this number of churches. So here's what Paul writes to them, to them beginning in um, verse 1. It says, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. With all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. So here's what Paul is saying. He's saying, I'm I'm encouraging you. Walk in a manner that's worthy of your calling. And your calling is to individually be a new creation and to collectively be one people group. The children of God walk worthy of your calling. But how do you do that? Verse 3 is kind of like the center. It's like a summary of the passage. It says this, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of, ki- in the bond of peace. We need to keep the unity of the Holy Spirit. But that unity will only stay together with the bond of peace. So here's what Paul does. In verse 2, he explains what it means to live in peace. And in verses 4 through 6, he explains what it looks like to have unity in the spirit. And verse 2 explains how do you practically live with, with other people so that you live in peace. And in 4 through 6, he lays out the foundation of how spiritually we are all united. We all have things in common despite our differences in our different backgrounds. So staying with the flow of the text, let's look at what does it mean to live in the bond of peace. And then let's look at the unity of the spirit. So beginning with verse 2, he says this. This is living with the bond of peace. With all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. So here we get two pairs, two things that go together. Lowliness and gentleness, long-suffering and bearing, and it's all sort of wrapped up in love. So what does it mean to live together in lowliness and gentleness? Well, lowliness is not thinking of yourself too high. It's not thinking that you're better than other people, that you're in a higher class than other people. that that, that you're better than everybody else around you and you deserve special treatment. It's looking at everyone as equal, deserving of honor and respect because we've all been made in the image of God. And what is gentleness? Gentleness is saying that I'm not going to put my foot down and always I've got to have my way. I've got to have my way in in the relationships. I'm going to demand that people treat me a certain way or I'm going to demand that people treat me with a certain amount of respect or whatever. It's I'm going to let you be you and me be me, and we're going to live together in harmony. But what else does he say? With long-suffering and bearing. You know what long-suffering is? It's patience. It's patience with people you don't like. It's patience with really annoying people. It's patience with people you don't want to be around. Y'all know what I'm talking about? The person that stops you in the foyer every Sunday and talks for like 15 minutes, and then they don't understand personal space, so they're like right here, right? And then the coffee breath is just like, and you're like, Lord, please rapture me right now. Get me out of this. It's the people that have come from different backgrounds, the people that you just don't understand. It's the northerners with the weird accents, and they eat oatmeal and stuff, and you're like, what is wrong with you? And it's the Southerners who, like, borderline heart attack every breakfast because it's just like grits with three pounds of butter and salt and pepper, and then they talk as flat as you can possibly be. And you know what I mean? Like, you're just like, ah, you weirdos. It's being patient with people that you don't really understand, maybe you don't even like, that kind of get on your nerves. It's the agreement that says we're going to stick this thing out no matter what. But what wraps it up? It's love. It's because we love one another. Just as Christ has loved us, that we recognize people are made in the image of God, that we love other people with the love that has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, as Paul says in Romans, that we are fueled to stick it out with people we don't like because of love. That's what it looks like to live in the bond of peace. But what is the unity of the Spirit? What are the things that bring us together? What are the spiritual things that unite us despite our differences? Well, Paul tells us in verse, verses six 4 through 6, he says this, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. So here's what Paul is doing. He is giving us a triune look at the unity that we have as a church, meaning that he gives us an example of how we're all unified from Father, Son, and Spirit, but he does it backwards. He starts with the Spirit, then he talks about the Son, and then he talks about the Father. Watch what he says there's one body and one Spirit. So he's saying there is one body of Christ, there is one church and we have all received the same Holy Spirit. Nobody has a different Holy Spirit, and it's the same Holy Spirit inside every Christian that is supernaturally uniting us and drawing us together. He says that we have got one hope of your calling, one hope. Our hope is that Jesus is coming back and we'll live with eternity with him, and the Spirit assures us of that hope. Earlier in this book, Paul says that the Holy Spirit is actually like a down payment. The Holy Spirit is almost like a taste of our hope. He's a taste of heaven. You get a little bit of what will come when Jesus comes back for us. But then he moves on to the Son, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. He's saying, We all serve the same Master, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're all saved by one faith, which is faith in Jesus' death and resurrection. We've all got one baptism. We are baptized into Christ's death, and the sinful person is gone, and we're baptized into his life. We're made a new person. And then finally, he moves on to the Father. There's one God and Father of all, who is above all, and through all, and in you all. He's saying, the fact of the matter is this. We're family now. Whether you like it or not, we're family now. You don't get to choose your brothers and sisters. We're family now. We've got the same Father and he's ruling over all, he's working in all, and he lives in all. And did you, did you pick up on the, on the common word in, in, in 4 through 6? It's one, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all. What Paul is saying is that spiritually we are brought together because we are all temples of the Holy Spirit. We are all a part of the body of Christ, with Christ being the head. And we are all adopted sons and daughters into the family of the Father. He's saying that we are united spiritually through our salvation. But why in chapter 3 does Paul say this? Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In other translations it says, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Why do we need to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, the peace that holds that unity together? Because if left on our own, without being zealous for unity, without working hard at it, without making a point to do it, we will fall into division like the rest of the world. See, we, we have a common unity in the spiritual reality of who our Savior is. But unless we work At the bond of peace, that unity won't stay together, but it'll fall apart. That's why we've got to have a bond of peace, which ties it all together. And I'm afraid that that as the church, we have not been eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, but we've allowed ourselves to fall into division like the rest of the world. As I mentioned earlier, we've got a denomination for everything. The church is split so much. It's not uncommon to see local church splits in the church. I was watching a YouTube video the other day, and just as casually as this pastor could be, he said, yeah, church splits, that's what Protestants do well. Just as casually as he could be. That in the in the grand scheme of things, we've allowed ourselves to be divided by Satan instead of being eager to maintain unity. But even in a local church, we've got to work hard To to, to maintain the unity of the spirit. Because church people can be some of the hardest people to get along with. Church people can be some of the baddest people about forgiving others and living alongside of them. One person makes a little offhand comment to you. One person says the little thing to you. And all of a sudden they are on the no forgive list. Whenever that person's name comes up in public, you get a little scowl on your face. You are just waiting at the opportunity to say something bad about them and tear them down and to remind the whole world about that one thing that they did to you. Maybe what I'm most embarrassed of is Facebook comment sections where Christians act like keyboard warriors and go after each other on the internet for the world to see, broadcasting our division for everybody in the local church. And then we let it affect us. Well, I would serve in that area. I would serve on the greeting team or in kids' church or in Thrive or on the worship team, but that person is there, so I'm just going to stay planted in my seat for now. Well, I was enjoying my small group, but three weeks in, just Nancy was there, and she's the worst, and she kind of made some little comments, and she said that she didn't like my outfit well, and I don't really like her, so I'm just going to kind of do life alone over here. And God forbid that we become church hoppers, That as soon as one person rubs us wrong, as soon as the pastor does one thing that we don't like, we're up and out of there onto a brand new congregation. We've allowed ourselves to do that. But Paul says that we should live with one another in lowliness, in gentleness, and in long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. Do I have any siblings in the room? Raise your hand if you're a sibling in the room. All right, now where are my younger siblings at? Raise your hand if you're the younger sibling. You are a gift from God, you're an angelic being, you're sinless and perfect, just as I am, you're amazing. The older siblings are just the problem children, you know what I mean? I'm just totally kidding, I'm kidding. But, oftentimes the older sibling enjoys picking on the younger sibling just because they can. And I kind of experienced this growing up with my brother being five years older than me. He did a few things to annoy me. Like when I was a kid, I'd be sitting in the room watching Spongebob or some kind of cartoon. And he would come down he'd say, Evan, let me see the controller. I just want to check the score of the baseball game. So he'd come take the controller, sit in another chair, turn it on baseball, and then he wouldn't give the controller back. And now all of a sudden, I'm watching baseball, which is like the most boring sport, okay? Like Spongebob is way better than baseball. I love to sleep with a box fan. Like, I, I need the noise to be able to fall asleep, and he likes the box fan too. So when he would come home from college, he would wait till I was asleep. Then he'd sneak in my room and take the box fan and then bring it in his room. And then I'd wake up at like 4 a.m. in the morning, like, what is going on right now? Like, why is it so quiet? And then I'd be like, Jared. So then I'd get up, and I'd, I'd go to walk in his room and take it back, and he's locked the door. Just <laughs> stolen that thing. He was always so much bigger than I am. Like, even at, like, the few times that we did fight, I couldn't do anything about it. Like, the only defense I had was to lay on my back and kick. So imagine, like, eight-year-old Evan with a bowl cut, just like, you know? He did plenty of stuff to annoy me. I'm sure I did plenty of stuff to annoy him. But at the end of the day, you want to know something? We're still brothers, and we're still family And we're going to do plenty of stuff to get on each other's nerves. But we don't get rid of each other. We don't put each other on silent mode. We don't stop answering phone calls. You know what you do? You just stick it out because that's what family does. And instead of letting people in the local church that you may disagree with or get on your nerves dictate your life, remind yourselves that we are all in the family of God, that they are your brothers and your sisters, and they might annoy you and get on your nerves, and you might not like what they post on Facebook or what they say to you or whatever else, but at the end of the day, you're going to stick it out with them because that's what family does. That's what the church is called to do. To stick it out with one another. And sometimes you might have to come have to, come to Jesus meeting, right? Or a family powwow, where you sit down and be like, look, we're going to have to change some things around here. But at the end of the day, you don't leave, you don't add more division, you don't tear them down in public, you stick it out. Because that's what the church is called to do. But as Paul gets done highlighting the unity of the church, What he wants to focus on is is although the church is called to be unified, the church isn't called to be uniform. But instead, God has gifted each individual with a unique gift to feed and to nourish the body of Christ. Watch what he says in verse 7. But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended, what does it mean that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who was descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So what is Paul saying here? He's saying that Jesus descended into the earth and when he died he even descended to the dead. But three days later he rose up in victory. Now he's sitting at the right hand of the Father ruling and reigning over his new kingdom. And he wants to fill all things as he's ruling and reigning up there. So he's distributed unique gifts to each one of us to empower us to live out and participate in this brand new kingdom, the kingdom of heaven that God is ruling over. And so he points out a number of gifts. He says he gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry. So what he's doing here is he is not listing out all spiritual gifts. He points out a few and what these spiritual gifts have in common is that they are basically teaching gifts. When we think about the apostles in this context, we would think about the, the 12 apostles, that those who uh, write scripture, so we would think about scriptures. But in that day the apostles were still authoritatively teaching in person. When we think about prophets, we think about people who who God speaks through them, and it's not on the same level as scripture, but still they're guiding and leading and teaching the church. When we think about evangelists, as people who proclaim the good news and remind us the simplicity of the gospel that Jesus came to save sinners. And when we look at shepherds, we think of that one-on-one counseling, that, that pastoral ministry, the conversations that you have with people. And then finally, teachers, those who, who stand and those who preach out of the word of God and, and declare the truth of the word of God. So he's pointing out just a subsect of the gifts. And he says, the teaching gifts. Those who have been gifted to teach, do you know what their role is? For the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. And why do the saints need to be equipped for the work of ministry? For the edifying of the body of Christ till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. And then he goes on to talk about growing up in spiritual maturity in Christ. So do you see what Paul is saying here? He's saying God has given every single person a unique unique gift. And the goal of of those with the teaching gift is not to do all of the ministry. It's not to be your only source of spiritual nourishment. But it's to stir up the gift of God inside of you. So that you would operate in your spiritual gift. And in turn the entire body would be nourished and grown up and moved to maturity in Christ. Paul is saying that growth does not happen off of the gifts of a few. Growth happens off of the gifts and participation of the entire body. That we cannot keep relying on professional pastors and preachers to grow us up spiritually, but it is a community effort, and anything less than that will leave us less mature than the stature of the fullness of Christ. I was doing some, uh, some research this week, and I, I found this cool thing um, in nature. It's a scientific word. It's called symbiosis. And symbiosis is basically just sort of the relationship between two organisms that live in, like, close physical proximity to one another. And, 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 and there are all kinds of different things of symbiosis. I think there are, like, four. Um, but one of them was mutualism. Mutualism is when one animal does something for another animal, and then that animal does something for the other animal in return. So think about this. There is a bird that lands on top of rhino's heads and eats the bugs off of the rhino's head. And then it flies ahead of the rhino. And when it sees that there's danger coming ahead, it, it alerts the rhino and tells the rhino that, that danger is coming ahead. So there's sort of a mutual agreement here. The rhino doesn't have bugs on his head anymore, and he's alerted when there's danger coming his way. And then the bird gets a steady supply of food. It's mutual. You do something for them, they do something for you. They're growing off of each other. But there's also another category in symbiosis that you're probably familiar of, you've heard it before. It's called parasitism. It's where one organism attaches to a host, and all it does is take and take and take and take, and it never gives. And the host is left malnourished. The host doesn't have the nutrients it's supposed to have, and all the parasite does is take. Like, that's what a, what a tapeworm does when it gets inside of you or something else. Now, I don't mean this pejoratively. I'm just going on with a the, with, with the theme of symbiosis. But I'm afraid that the American church, especially, is not full of mutualism. It's full of parasitism. Because here's what we've done in the church church is all about what can I get? What can the pastoral team or the lead pastor give, and what can I get? And there's a whole lot of getting and not a whole lot of giving. There's a whole lot of people who show up to church on Sunday and get a word, but never contribute anything back to the church. There's a whole lot of people that show up to our events and take all of our free stuff, but never tithe and sow back into the ministry. There's a lot of people that drop their kids off at kids camp and let Amy take care of them for a while, but never do anything to serve elsewhere in the church and help somebody else like Amy is doing. Because what we have done is we have commercialized and capitalized the church. That it's all about the consumer showing up to the business and getting what they want. You just show up and you take and you take and you take. But what Paul is saying here is the church was never designed to be full of consumers. It was designed to be full of co-workers. And that the way to spiritual maturity is not relying on the gifts of a few teaching pastors. But he actually says the way that you will grow spiritually is by using your unique God-given gift to help somebody else and then receiving somebody else's God-given gift to you. That growth doesn't happen alone, but growth happens in community. And leaving it to anything else, you will not grow as spiritually mature as God has designed you to be if you continue on with so low Christianity. So what should we do? I want to encourage you, if you have never been through growth track, go through growth track. Like even if you've been coming to the church for like 15 years or something, get in growth track. Because what growth track has designed, is designed to do is one to understand the vision of the church. But then in growth track, step two, you actually take a spiritual gifts test. And you understand how God has wired you to serve. And then in the, in the third step, you actually get an opportunity to get plugged into our church and also to get plugged into a small group. So I want to encourage you today. Do you want to grow in Christ? Do you want to obey the Bible? Do you want to live out God's plan for you? Start serving today. Has God gifted you to shepherd but he hasn't called you to full-time ministry, become a small group leader and shepherd and pastor your eight-person small group so ferociously and passionately like you were leading a church. Because as you begin to shepherd those people and pour into them, God is going to begin to teach you about love and about patience and about long-suffering and about how to care, people and care for people and just as you're helping them, they will be helping you. And you want to learn patience? Start serving in a sixth grade small group. I'll teach you patience real quick. You're trying to talk to them about Jesus, all they want to talk about is video games and TV and whatever else, and you're just trying to like rein them in? But parents, do you want your student to know what biblical love is? Don't let them just hear it in a sermon. Get down there and serve and show them what biblical love is. That biblical love is listening to them and crying with them and sitting on the phone with them and working through all of their stuff with them and teaching them and pouring into them one-on-one. That's how your student is going to know what love is, not just a sermon from me or Brian or Jonathan or whoever else on a Sunday morning. God wants to teach you through your gift. But I also think sometimes we think, well, there's just nowhere in church, there's, there's no design ministry that I can use my gift. And I understand that. That maybe you've gone through growth track, you've done the whole thing, and you just feel like there's no ministry here that's specifically designed for my gift. Can I give you some good news? You don't need a title to use your gift. You don't need a specially organized ministry to use your gift. You don't need a a pastor's approval to pour into the church. You can just do it. Are you good with finance? Are you good with money? You don't have to start a finance money ministry that meets every Thursday at some room in the church. Post on Facebook anybody that needs help with their finances and needs to know how to be a good steward. Like the Bible says, come meet me at my house this Thursday. You don't need our stamp of approval. Has God gifted you with intercessory prayer? And when you get on your knees and you pray, things happen. You don't have to join an intercessory prayer team and get a t-shirt and get a name and a logo. You can get up 30 minutes early on a Sunday morning with a cup of coffee by your side and say, Lord Jesus, show up at high praises today. Save somebody today. Do something miraculous today. And he will do it. Has God gifted you to love people and to serve people, to be merciful to people? You don't need to become outreach ministries pastor. You can just text somebody, text the small group, say, do you want to serve our community this Saturday? I'm going to the local soup kitchen. And watch God grow that team because of your faithfulness and show them what it looks like to be a servant just like Jesus Christ. You don't need a position to get permission, just do it. That's what God has called us to do. And in doing that, that's where you will find real spiritual growth. The teaching gift is important, sure it is, but it is not everything that is out there for you and it's not God's design for your growth and your spiritual maturity. And if you're trapped in the same place spiritually as you were five years ago, maybe try getting in community and allowing other people to pour into your life instead of doing solo Christianity on your own and watch a difference in your life. But finally, what does Paul go on to? Why does he say we need to grow up spiritually mature? Why does he say that we need to grow in community? What are the consequences if we don't? He says this beginning in verse 14. That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love, we may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. So what does Paul say? He's saying that if we don't grow in groups, if we don't grow in community, If we don't get some people surrounding us, growing us with their gifts, we will be left spiritually immature and we will be spiritual children. And when you are a spiritual child, you are susceptible to all the different lies and philosophies and doctrines that this world wants to throw at you. When you are spiritually immature and living your Christian life in solo mode, that is when Satan can attack you most. When you aren't as spiritually mature as you need to be because you've kind of been doing this thing on your own, you're not going to be able to withstand what Satan wants to throw at you. And there are all kinds of lies, all kinds of fake philosophies in this world. One of the most popular things Satan wants us to believe today is that my feelings are the final authority on truth. That if I feel it, it must be true. That's one of the biggest things in our culture today. So you might be saying, well, I'm feeling that my marriage doesn't feel as good as it did five years ago. And I'm feeling that I think I'm ready to get out of this thing. I'm feeling that I just don't like this job after only six months, so I think I'm just going to peace out. I'm feeling, I'm feeling, I'm feeling. And the devil wants to pull you into a trap of making a poor decision. But when you've got people surrounding you, when you've got people in your corner, all it takes is a small group leader talking to you, have a conversation with you, calling you, saying, look, I know what you're feeling, but the Bible says your feelings are your moral authority, that the heart is deceitful above all things. But here is what the scriptures have to say, and they kind of pull you back into reality and biblical truth. That's why we need community. Another lie that we have is that, that, that we believe that Jesus just made me this way. God made me this way. I'll always be stuck in this sin. I'll always be stuck in this dysfunction. Maybe even this, this isn't even sin. Maybe this is okay. God made me this way. And we begin to accept our brokenness as if it's God's plan for our life. But you need somebody in your corner surrounding you going, God hasn't designed you to live in brokenness and sin. He's designed you to be free for who the sun sets free is free indeed. I'm going to grab you by the hand and walk you into freedom and victory because that's what the church does. There's lies that they want to tell men that your value is found in how much money you can make and how many things you can provide for your family. But you need some guys in your corner saying your value is not in your net worth. Your worth is not in your net worth. Your value is that you are a son of God made in the image of Jesus. We need people in our corner. I remember the very first sermon I ever preached downstairs. I was an intern. I was terrified. I don't know what I was doing up there with all these awkward teenagers looking at me. But I remember I I used this illustration. When we think about lions going to attack their prey, they never attack the pack. Whatever their prey is, they never go for the group. You know who they go for? The straggler. The one that ran on their own. The one that tried to make it alone. That's who they track down and that's who they kill. And Satan has come to steal, kill, and destroy. He is like a roaring lion seeking to devour us spiritually. And if you do life on your own, you will be his number one target. But God has not designed us to grow and to live and to spiritually mature on our own, He's called us to grow in community, to grow in groups into the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So would you stand with me today? And if our prayer team would just go ahead and and line the altar, here's what I want you to do today. Here's my challenge to you. My challenge to you today is that you would take a next step. Whatever your next step is, my challenge is that you would take a next step. Here's what it looks like. If you've never been through Growth Track, I don't care how long you've been coming, how long you've been here, if you've never been through Growth Track, I wanna encourage you, go through Growth Track. It's there you'll discover your spiritual gifts, you'll get an opportunity to serve and an opportunity to join a life group. But maybe you've gone through Growth Track, you're just not serving anywhere. I wanna encourage you, take your next step, Get involved and serve somewhere. Somewhere. Stop by guest services and say, I'm ready to get involved. Even if you're a little unsure about it. Like you're not really sure you're going to like it. Give it a shot. Find some kind of area. Do something. But maybe if you've done all that, but you haven't joined a life group. That you're not living the Christian life with other people. That you don't have people in your corner surrounding you. I want to encourage you, take your next step and join a life group. Don't do life alone. That's the reason that we're here. So in just a moment, when I call you down, I want you to pray about whatever your next step is. That God would give you wisdom, he would give you courage, he would guide you to the right thing or the right place, the right ministry or the right life group or whatever. And then finally, the reason that we have the prayer team is is if you have a need, if you have any kind of need, I mean, and it has nothing to do with the message today. It doesn't have anything to do with that. But you just need Jesus to answer a prayer. That's the reason we're here. We want to pray with you and love on you and believe God that he's going to move in your life. So if you would, would everybody just step out and make your way down to the altar?